right, welcome everyone to another episode of the Great Old Ones Gaming Podcast. I'm Nate, lost in time and space, and I'm joined with today... I'm Innkeeper Vase Odin from the Twisted Tentacle Inn. And I am super excited for today's episode, Vase. This is our first Call of Cthulhu review. Oh yeah, yeah. We've done some uh, Delta Green reviews and of course Arkham stuff, but never Call of Cthulhu and... I've been waiting for something like this for a long time, so this is cool that we're doing this. Yeah, and I think it's pretty fitting that we start off with uh, the particular product that we chose to do, which is the Gateways to Terror, uh, three, uh, three Evenings of Nightmare, which is the subtitle. Fun little fact there. Uh, this is a collection of scenarios intended for convention play. Written by Lee Carr, John Hook, and Todd Gardner. And uh, the it's three, three short scenarios. They were initially play-tested and played at different conventions and were meant to draw people in to show them what Call of Cthulhu was all about, but in short little snippets, so one-hour sessions. Uh, but it, it basically is intended to give the feel of Call of Cthulhu along with the to help people learn the mechanics and make it nice and easy for people to kind of understand the game. And if they like what they experience, then they can get into more complex uh, products from the game and such. But that's not to say there isn't any value for veteran players as well, because you could certainly take any of these scenarios and the information that's provided in them and flesh them out a little more and make them longer scenarios too. Yeah, they all have interesting premises that could easily branch out. So like you said, they're an experienced keeper can really turn these into a launching pad for something bigger, which is really cool. So each scenario is kind of laid out in a very similar manner. Uh, we had actually originally intended to review each of them separately, but given the nature of the book, it's just kind of made more sense to review them all in this manner. So each one kind of gives some, some background story about what's going on in the scenario and some, some prior setup and each scenario provides a uh, collection of handouts and pre-generated characters for the, the investigators to play, which is really nice. Yeah, the, the pre-gens are awesome. I love the idea of having these characters that all have some kind of tie or connection to the story. And they all have interesting premises, interesting motivations and backgrounds. A lot of them have secrets. So it's it's a great one-sheet thing for a new player to look over and learn how to role play that character because they're really well fleshed out and they all have skills that are appropriate for the scenario, but not, they don't all possess every single skill needed to run the scenario. So you're going to be counting on everybody else to do their part to help complete your mission or your scenario. So it's really neat how they've done uh, these pregens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And each one kind of fills a different role, um, similar to how classes work in, uh, traditional RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, there are kind of archetypes in Call of Cthulhu, and each scenario kind of shows players what each one is, which is which is a really nice touch as well. Um, so going on from there, each scenario kind of gives a kind of a literal timeline in terms of like length of time in game or in real real time it should take for the investigators to kind of go through the sequence of the events in the scenario. Yeah, it's great, especially for new keepers, or if you're in a time crunch, this really helps you kind of keep track of where you're at. And if you notice, uh, if it tells you should be tw you should be in this section 20 minutes in, and you're not in that section and you're 20 minutes in, you know, to kind of speed things up, to kind of keep the pace of the scenario going. It's really, really handy. I wish more scenarios did things like this. Yeah, I agree. It's really handy um, for sure. 
and then and and then it kind of gives each scenario gives a conclusion of uh, how things kind of go down depending on what the investigators do. Yeah, in terms of uh, development, you mean like yep. developing yep. of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's cool. They they really thought of just about everything. Uh, they really it's clear that they had the new player and the new keepers in mind when they wrote these because. It's not just that the stories are, are a little bit more simplified to make it easy on people, but the the scenario outline is nice and it's a, it's set up in a way where it's easy to follow. And then everything is structured in a way, it, the way it's presented for the keepers. So it's very easy for them to keep track of or look up certain things. Everything is in sections that are that make sense. Mm-hmm. So if you need to look something up, you know exactly where to find it. And kind of a more higher level concept is that all the scenarios also are kind of condensed into very small areas as well, which kind of keeps the pace going because there's only so much stuff that the investigators can look through. Yeah, that's definitely intentional for sure. Because, yeah, you don't, want, you don't want to give too much of a what they call a sandbox <laughs> for, for a new beginner or, or a convention type play. Uh, scenario because then that can open up too much so but the good thing is you can also expand on these if you if you want to make it a longer scenario more than one hour it gives you tips on how to make each section longer how to expand on it and things like that technically the first thing it does is it it does also provide you with some general guidelines and rules recommendations for running each of the scenarios Uh, the the gateways to terror does recommend using the optional luck rule uh, in seventh edition Call of Cthulhu, which allows uh, players to spend luck points in order to uh, lower the available skill test for for various roles. So it, it there are some um, additional little rules clarifications and things like that, which is also nice for anywhere keepers. And they reinforce certain rules that are easy to forget, like firearms when uh, when taking initiative order. Your dexterity, uh, how the if you're using firearm, you add fifty points to your dexterity. It's dex plus fifty. So it's like little things like that that you might normally forget. They remind you briefly things that are relevant and important. All right. So why don't we go ahead and talk about each of these scenarios uh, specifically, kind of more in detail? So I think from this point on, we're kind of gonna go into spoiler territory. So if you don't want the stories of the scenarios spoiled for you uh go ahead and skip the rest of this and we will see you all next time goodbye (laughs) all right so why don't we start with the uh the necropolis oh cool yeah you know i didn't know if that if i was gonna like that one um i love egyptian stuff i have a tattoo with egyptian hieroglyphics and especially ancient egypt and the lore and all that stuff is, is something that interests me a lot which is why Nyarlathotep is like my favorite, one of my favorite great old ones. But even despite that, sometimes because I like it so much, I'm pretty pretty critical with these type of things that, that bring up Egypt. Uh, so I wasn't sure if I would like it, but this one is my favorite of the three. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because I'm also like a big fan of uh, like ancient Egyptian mythology and culture and all that stuff and i i actually kind of feel i'm less warm to it i don't hate it but i'm not in love with it Mm. and i think when we kind of get uh get a little more into the meat and potatoes of it i'll i'll kind of go over why but um but yeah 
um, the scenario kind of starts off as a um, as a as an expedition team is about to open an archway into uh, some unknown chamber in the Valley of the Kings. Yep, and um, this takes place after the Great War. So there was, um, I guess, an, an exploration team that had gone there before, during the Great War. And I, I don't remember if it's clear that someone had been there before or not. But um, Yeah, one of the investigators actually, it's not that they, uh, that they were here after the Great War. It's uh, one of the, one of the pre-generated investigators uh, served in Egypt during the Great War and has stayed there ever since, kind of in hiding from... Yeah, uh, from the German government. Yeah, I thought the because there was an expedition or a guy, the doctor. When they find the the first handout, it's like letters or like a journal entry from this doctor or this archaeologist that was there before. Them. Oh, yes, and he was yes. there during the Great War, I believe, is what it said. Uh, nineteen sixteen. Yes. Yeah. So. so so then, the expedition was abandoned because of the Great War. Things happened in turmoil and whatever, and it was kind of abandoned. So I don't remember now if when the investigators get there, if they rem- if they knew that this had already been a site for exploration initially, and then it was because of the Great War, it was kind of left to oblivion, and then they show up. But uh, regardless, one of the pregens is a is a soldier, ex soldier, who was dishonorably discharged, which is adds a little bit of an interesting dynamic once you do find that handout because, you know, it's like, oh, um, somehow there's a connection there, you know, between you being in the Great War and then this this other expedition that was there beforehand that never completed their mission because of the Great War. Um, but anyway, so that's a kind of a side thing. But so the, the investigators find this this tomb and then what happens um so they they get some time to actually explore the small chamber itself which only really consists of two rooms uh two rooms and a passageway and as they kind of make their way through the passageway it, uh the scenario kind of emphasizes that the investigators can kind of feel the walls crumbling in around them and that you know at any moment the walls might might crumble so there's this kind of sense of urgency to try to find a way out um but eventually they'll make their way into an antechamber which has all sorts of uh all sorts of goodies in it between like a rowboat and all sorts of other nonsense and strange uh things that those who are experienced archaeologists and are are trained in egyptian ancient egyptian history find that there's no known record of these types of things in ancient Egypt. And you, you probably will have an investigator in the group that is skilled in something like that in Egyptian yeah, history. Whether it's the archaeologist or the uh, professor of languages, uh, somebody will be, will be an expert in that field. So they'll be able to unearth some of this stuff. Uh, there are some interesting things that they can find within the passageway. There's some very cryptic messages um, written out in hieroglyphs. There's also some recesses in the wall that uh, house some mummified dogs, which kind of act as guardians for the tomb itself. And they're those are creepy. Well, the dogs are, are weird, but then afterwards they find like these mummified humans with, as, as they go deeper into the antechamber, uh, let me back up there. As they go deeper, they start finding more and more disturbing things that point to to not just some 
Egyptian burial rituals, but a more sinister type of setup here in this in this ancient tomb. And the guards, the humanoid-looking guards, mummified guards, are impaled. It's very very specific that it's pretty graphic that they're impaled into the standing position. So there's some kind of spear that goes all the way through their bodies to keep them upright, and they've their heads have been removed and replaced by animal heads, which again is real creepy. <laughs> yes, uh, I believe it's a dog head specifically. Uh kind of pay homage to Anubis. Yeah, one's an alligator and one's a dog or something like that. But um, yeah, it's it's a really, really creepy scene. If you deliver it properly to your players, I think this could be like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of moments for, uh, for a lot of like nice, tense, creepy atmosphere to go on in the antechamber. But eventually the investigators uh, will see that there's a broken archway uh, that leads into an annex, and the annex has an even more disturbing mural of the Black Pharaoh Narlathotep. Yeah, and uh, a whole city with like tentacles coming out of it and blood everywhere. And eventually, they'll find a skeleton in a shrine with a set of notes, and that's where they find the handout uh, yeah. that Face had alluded to earlier. Yeah, so clearly the guy that was here you know, 10, 50 or 15 years, 20 years or whatever earlier, this is where, <laughs> this is where he died. Uh, and then, uh, as they're finding this, you're, you're keeping track of time because what's the other thing that I liked about this is it's not based on where, like, there's no trigger for the major event. It's time-based. So it, depending on when you want your scenario to end, let's say you have a one hour playtime right around the 40 minute mark the players start hearing scraping noises and like basically it's the sounds of a tomb a tomb's lid being slid open and then they hear a crash and you know just this the sounds of something coming out of a, a large tomb mm-hmm. so it doesn't matter where they are even if they're still in the in initial passageway and wasting time doing that they will hear that and then then all hell breaks loose at this point. <laughs> and you may be asking, why don't the investigators just go back out the way they came? Well, conveniently enough, the the way they come in becomes blocked by a giant stone slab that they can't move. So they have to uh, they have to try to find another way out. And um, aside from the broken archway in the antechamber, there's another sealed exit that the burial chamber is behind. And eventually the abomination that is buried underneath this sarcophagus eventually arises and breaks the seal on the door. Yeah, and it's a large human with a wolf head, and it comes after the investigators who have to either get away or fight it, which they probably aren't going to survive if they fight it. They will definitely not survive (laughs) if they fight it. Um. So that is not really an option, but <laughs> there is a way to defeat the monster. Yeah, you can bring down the whole thing on top of it. Because you can you can do that, um, but in the treasure in the uh, treasury room uh, behind the burial chamber itself, there can uh, there contains a canopic jar that has the heart of the beast itself. Oh, that's and right. there are clues. There are clues kind of scattered throughout. Uh, the antechamber and the annex to sort of lead the investigators to uh, come up to this solution. But uh, personally, I think it's 
pretty easy to miss. Yeah. Unless you, as the keeper, kind of lay it on pretty thick. Yeah, yeah. But that's part of what I like about this one uh, versus the others. This one gives you different ways and different options to handle a lot of different things. So, for example, as a keeper, we, we mentioned that a lot of these scenarios give you ways to expand upon them if you want to continue the story. And the, you mentioned the slab that blocks the entryway, why the investigators can't just go out the way they came. It's There's a lot of implied things that are occurring. So you're not sure as an investigator if it was an accident or if it was done on purpose because you hear kind of laughing and chattering outside from the workers. And then when you read the letters that you find on the corpse, the letters are clear that the workers did not want them there. And the, the workers murdered the guy's assistant, the archaeologist's assistant, and trapped him in there. So you can expand on that. Maybe they're cultists, maybe, you know, whatever it could be. Or it could have just been an accident that the slab came down. But same thing with, like, this this heart situation. There's, there's ways to deal with the creature that are more than just, you know, run from it or evade it or fight it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely, that's my biggest... Uh strength for this scenario or my biggest um what's the word i'm looking for my biggest pro for this scenario is that there are a lot of options for the investigators uh even though it's kind of it feels it like a an inevitable kind of situation for them but it actually creates a lot of interesting role-playing um opportunities for them which is cool yeah and i i, I really i the reason i like it the most in addition to those other things is the way it, you can build it is laid out in a way that's more simple uh, because they have to progress through this chamber, through these passageways, and things are getting exponentially more creepy and more uh, interesting. And so you can start throwing little things. And I, I think as a player, as you're finding these things little by little in the in the right order, it's like, oh, man, this is really cool. Oh, what? And it's more like that that constant discovery of information that's coming at you and you feel like you're doing something because you're rolling skills to get some of this information. You're using strength to find the dogs that were mummified or you're using archaeology to translate some of the glyphs and find out that this isn't real ancient Egyptian glyphs. It's something else. You know, so it's like has a way to develop this the story little by little in a natural way. And I really, really like that about it. Yeah, that's... That is something I definitely appreciate about it. I guess my uh, my bugabear about this scenario is that I think it can be very easy for, uh, especially a newer keeper, to to have the abomination feel either like a big giant pushover or this giant creature that just slays every investigator in a turn or two. Sure, sure. Um, so I think particularly in this scenario, I think it should be handled with care um, more so than later scenarios, which we'll get into in a bit. But um, this scenario can be very brutal if you don't handle it well. And there is also the implication that the whole place is caving in. So, so there is that to contend with as well. Yeah. I kind of like that though, because it adds a, another layer of tension that. Yeah, I like it in the fact um, for the fact that it it gives a timeline for the investigators to kind of like hurry up and keep pace, which is nice. Yeah, your your issue with the creature is definitely something that I have an issue with, but I didn't 
I didn't find that it was any more or less than the other scenarios, but I guess we'll get to those when we get there. But it is an issue that I think is an issue for all the all three scenarios is these are new players. A lot of new players that come to Call of Cthulhu come from like Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. And they're used to fighting their way out of things. They're used to killing things. And Call of Cthulhu is a very, very different game where you're not supposed to be fighting everything that you see. And usually the best solution is to run away <laughs> or find other ways to defeat things without a straight up fight. And these three scenarios in this book, I think mostly uh, try to, or they don't, they don't make it that clear and they make it actually pretty hard to not confront things head on and therefore putting the players or the investigators at high risk of, of losing the entire group uh, to these creatures or the bosses because they're, like you mentioned earlier, they're in a confined space in pretty much all three scenarios. And I guess I'm going on too long because I should do this in, their re- in our final thoughts, but um, that's my biggest gripe in pretty much all three. But anyways, uh, I, I didn't find this one to be any worse than the others, but I, I do understand where you're coming from because here they are trapped, unlike the other two scenarios. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess that's kind of my my big shtickler with this one. And that and the creature itself is it has weapons and it it will attack the investigators, whereas in the other ones, you know, it, it has specific targets and it has a specific motive. Whereas this one just I you know, it's it's just gonna attack anything it sees, so That's fair. That's actually a fair point. <laughs> but I think aside from that, this scenario is a lot of fun. Uh if you're into the whole ancient Egypt theme and you like Indiana the, Jones <laughs> Yeah, this is a perfect, like, pulpy adventure that I can really get behind. Yep, yep, I agree. Um, what would you give it for a grade? Um, um, I mean, overall, compared to all Call of Cthulhu adventures that I've played. I mean, of the three. Of the three. It's my favorite of the three, so I would give it um, the top one of the three. I think it's my second favorite. I think I think I still like uh, Dead Border and uh, the next one that we'll talk about a little more. Okay. Fair, fair. And you have some good reasons behind it, some good points behind that. Uh, it's not perfect, so I wouldn't rate it as a top adventure for Call of Cthulhu, but for what it is, uh, of the three, it's my favorite of the three. Yeah, I guess my, my other criticism is that this scenario, uh, less so than the other ones, kind of doesn't really give you as many... Uh, seeds for future scenarios or suggestions on how to really kind of lengthen and flesh out the scenario. What? This one to me, this one to me kind of felt the least fleshed out. I beg to differ. Which I know sounds kind of weird, but. (laughs) I beg to differ because I feel like of all the other scenarios, the it's, it's kind of subtle because it's a lot of the seeds are planted in the pre-gen investigators Whereas in the other scenarios, that's not necessarily the case. So you have people, you know, like the great, the guy, the soldier in the Great War. Well, why did he hit the other, his his commanding officer? You know, what did he see? What did he find? What was he fighting down there? Um, in the treasure room, uh, there's so much treasure that you find. It says there, even a small trinket can have an investigator live their whole life pretty well off with just that, by selling just that one trinket. So... 
there's a bunch of treasure. So what else did they find in there? Did they find something with uh, mystical properties or things like that? You know, so it's I think very subtle. And then of course the workers that murdered the initial archaeologist assistant. There's a seed there, but you just have to do a little more work as a keeper to expand on those seeds than than in the other scenarios. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess my point is like this scenario kind of gives you the least amount of uh, assistance in that regard. Yeah. If that makes sense. That's fair. It is meant for newer investigators or uh, keepers. So in a way, yes, that's fair for a newer keeper for sure. They wouldn't catch those little things that could turn into seeds. So that's fair. All right. Well, let's move on to the second one. Uh, what's in the cellar? What's in the cellar? My least favorite of the three. <laughs> See, that's, this is interesting. Yeah, it is. I, um, I like this one. Huh? Okay, well, uh, so uh, the this, this premise of this one is your investigators are all trying to clear the name of a friend of theirs or some kind of acquaintance of theirs who is being charged with murdering his wife and possibly facing the electric chair. And so you go into his house to try and investigate the disappearance and clear his name. The investigators eventually make their way down into the cellar, as the name suggests. And as they're investigating through the cellar, they eventually come across uh, various um, knickknacks and things within, excuse me, within the cellar that they begin to realize uh, the origins of of Mr. Blackwood. Then they find they find an old box. It's in the box. Yeah, that what's in the box in the cellar? Um, so in the box itself, there is a a small painting of a stern-looking man in Puritan clothing uh, with a weird black jeweled ring on one of its fingers. And on the back of the painting is written Wizard Milton Blackwood. Uh, Blackwood is the last name of Arthur, who is the, uh, who is the uh, man in question, who is uh, going to be put to the chair. So he's, uh, he must be some kind of ancestor to... Uh to the suspect of the murder. Mm -hmm. Mm. Uh, the other thing in the box is an old journal dated from 1975 or 1725, excuse me. Uh, a successful Eng uh, language English role is actually required to read it because it's uh, kind of written in an older uh, archaic English. Um, but the, but the resulting, uh, successful role does allow the investigators to kind of glean some more information into the Blackwood bloodline. And it turns out he's some sort of uh, warlock of some kind, right? The, the guy who's in the painting and mm -hmm. the bloodline starts to become, it starts to become clear that the bloodline is important uh, to, at least to what happened with, with the disappearing woman, with the wife of the guy. Um, because it's there's ties to uh or the the investigators themselves some of them have ties in terms of bloodline to the suspect right mm -hmm. yep um one of them is unaware of the fact that they're a distant relative of the blackwoods um and another one is a distant cousin so that starts to to play a role in the in the actual backstory of what's going on here mm-hmm yeah, um, the the scenario itself kind of directs the keeper to sort of make um, make the the spirit within the uh, within the actual cellar itself kind of 
guide uh, the players in a way by by giving them uh, kind of subversive clues, like saying uh, your blood is cursed, uh, the Blackwoods must die, etc. Kind of giving uh, this like creepy ghost seller vibe. And uh, once they discover four clues, then doesn't something happen? I can't. I remember reading something about an event after. Yeah. So eventually, uh, as the investigators kind of continue looking around in the basement, this spirit will attempt to uh, attack anyone that is of the Blackwood bloodline. Um, the 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 creature in question uh, was actually trapped and bound to the cellar by uh, Milton Blackwood, who is the descendant of Arthur Blackwood. And he um, he banished the creature underneath his basement uh, in exchange for um, good luck for his bloodline. So the monster, after several hundred years of being bound to the basement, is finally free from the cellar and... Um, it eventually is made clear to the investigators that the ring uh, that is worn by Milton Blackwood in the painting is what is used as sort of a... Um, protection from the creature or something like that? Yeah, it serves as both protection and as the um, kind of material component necessary to cast the spell, the binding spell on the creature. Look at you getting all D&D material components and <laughs> yeah. verbal components. Yeah. Inner Call of Cthulhu game. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, I guess the the truth of what's what's happened to the lady is she made a, she made a mistake by opening the... She had no idea what was happening mm-hmm. and opened the, the resting place of this creature and it attacked her and killed her, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and Arthur kind of found her in a daze and uh, has no idea what's going on, essentially. And he he is basically not framed, but he is he's kind of the one that takes the fall for yeah, it. Yeah, because it makes uh, sense. And, I mean, if you don't know that there's supernatural forces around, who else but the husband did it? Right. And his hand is, he's, you know, he's caught literally right-handed yeah. in this circumstance. So, <laughs> um but yeah, so the so the creature will eventually attempt to attack anyone that is of the Blackwood uh, bloodline or anyone that attempts to defend these people, and it's um, eventually the creature will kind of you know imply that there is a a seal underneath all of the uh, the rocks in the basement, and eventually the uh, the intent is that the investigators kind of dig up the ring and dig up the seal and banish the creature back into the basement yep so for me this one um it just feels too i don't know it 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 feels uninspired to me um there are some aspects that i like you know i like the the history of the uh, ancestors of blackwood being a warlock of some kind and you know family curse uh even though it's cliched it's still something that still can be interesting even after it's been overused so much. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like it just doesn't go deep enough, you know, like making a deal with this creature for good luck seems just a little too plain. I, I know they're trying to keep it simple, but I don't know. Um, I like the idea of the investigators unknowingly being part of the bloodline. Yeah. That for me was um, my favorite aspect of this scenario is that, 
it really gives a kind of interesting hidden uh, aspect to the characters that they may not have known about, which to me gives a very Lovecraftian vibe. Uh, the whole scenario really does for me. Like, I think that kind of cliche of, you know, family bloodlines kind of is a Lovecraftian trope in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Um, I just feel like it's uh, it, it's missing something for me. Like, it's it, it needs a little bit more inspiration for me for it to work, you know? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't inspire me to want to run it. It doesn't inspire me to want to expand on it. It just, it's just there for me. You know, and I know I mentioned I praised the Egypt one for having open things like that 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 could lead to bigger storylines because they're so unclear. But this is different in that even though it's like unclear, some things aren't as clear or whatever, and they they do leave things open for interpretation and future stories. It just I don't know. I feel like there's something missing to inspire that extra that extra light bulb in my head for it. Maybe it's just a personal thing. Maybe. Yeah. Cause to me, this is kind of a great, um, monster of the week style story that I could kind of very easily just run through and be done with it, which is kind of something I liked about it personally. Um, I like that the players have very clear motivations and have ties to, uh, kind of the, the story surrounding the, uh, the investigation itself, and they have like a very clear motive from the get-go, uh, whether they're being paid to to investigate as a PI or if they're uh, family members, which is neat. Um, but how how would they? I, I don't remember if in the conclusion of it says like if they end up clearing his name because they can't come to the authorities with supernatural with information about a supernatural influence, right? Yeah. So there is in. You can recover Rose's skull, Rose being the uh, the murder victim. And if you can if you can manage to get out of the house safely, um, you can potentially there is potentially enough evidence to clear his name. But yeah, I do agree that that is kind of the weaker point of the scenario in general. Yeah, maybe that's why I'm like a little <laughs> tepid about it, just because it's it's it feels like the whole purpose. You, for your investigators going there to try and clear his name and you find this thing and whatever, but even though you find out what really happened, I don't know that you, you know, that it's going to fully clear his name. Cause right. Yeah. 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 I, I, I can understand where you're coming from on that aspect. Um, I think for me, the biggest, the biggest strength of this scenario for me is, um, it actually kind of, to me, it feels, uh, one of the more fleshed out ones. Hmm. Okay. Like I, I do agree with you that the, the arcane symbol and the ring are kind of contrived, but I do feel that this one would be a lot easier to, to flesh out and interject into a campaign for most players than, than I think the necropolis would. Fair. Yeah, I mean that's a that's an exotic location with a very specific event. Yeah, a very specific kind <laughs> yeah. of event. But this one, I think you could you could more easily interject into an ongoing campaign, or if you wanted to change certain aspects of it, I think this one has the most room to breathe in that. That's aspect. very true. I mean, you could be in the middle of a campaign with existing investigators and just throw it out there that one of them didn't even know that they had blood ties to this Blackwood guy. 
Yeah, yeah. and you could <laughs> you could change the Blackwoods to be you know a relevant NPC in your campaign or something yeah, like that. That's true. So, so that that to me is part of the reason why I like this one so much. Yeah, is that I can I can see myself kind of taking the the skeleton of this scenario and really fleshing it out and making something interesting mm. of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I could see your point for why you like it, and it, and it's definitely valid. I just also like for a new player, like would this draw them in and be like, oh man, Call of Cthulhu is awesome. You know, <laughs> I don't know. For yeah, I guess that that's fair. Um, you know, I I I think it's all about the delivery. Yeah, kind of much like much like my criticism with the first one. You know, I think it's all going to kind of really depend on how the keeper delivers each scene. That's a good point. Yeah, because that one that one really inspired me. That first one, to and I already was, you know, envisioning like how I'm going to narrate. You know, as they discover things on the walls and they hear sounds coming from, you know, the echoing chambers far into the darkness ahead. And it for me, it inspired me to think of descriptions to give to players. This one didn't, and so I guess. For me, I, I guess you're right. It's it just depends on how much the scenario inspires you to kind of really take the reins and lead it into being something extra cool. Which, um, if if you don't like something, you're probably not going to go out of your way to to do that kind of thing with it. But if you do, then <laughs> or if, if when you read it, it inspired you, then I guess it does. So maybe it is just a matter of taste for me on this one. Yeah. Uh, I could see this one being really cool. If you added some like neat Insmith elements to it. Yeah. I'd like the Insmith angle for sure. I think that would have been a nice addition to it. Uh, so, so what would you rate this one vase? Well, it's my least favorite of the three. So for me, it's in the bottom <laughs> for me, it's in the bottom. Uh, it's still, it still serves a good purpose for introducing new players and, like you said, it's excellent if you need a monster of the week. You you didn't have time to prep anything. This one you can prep in less than an hour and run it and throw it right in the middle of your campaign and, and keep on going and keep everybody happy. So it's still good. It's just of the three, it's my least favorite one. I think this one is, um, you know, now that we've kind of more talked about it, I, I, think, I, I think this one's my second favorite. Um, I think the last one is still my favorite, even after talking about the other two pretty extensively. Yeah, the the last one is a second, a close second for me. Um, so I guess we can just get into it, yeah? Yeah. Uh, so the last scenario that's provided in the book is The Dead Border, which takes place in a small boarding house in 1931 in Providence, Rhode Island. Which uh, is really cool because... Most Call of Cthulhu games take place like in the 20s. So it's, we were talking about this the other day. The Roaring 20s is more like a hopeful time period. Everybody's happy. Uh, you know, there's jazz music and flappers and all this stuff. But when you hit the 1930s, then it's like prohibition and there's a lot of uh, organized crime that's rising and the Great Depression. Or uh, the Depression, yeah. yeah Great so. Depression. So there's a lot of not, it's the opposite of hope. <laughs> there's a lot of depression and. And just people struggling to survive on their own. So it creates an atmosphere of a completely different feel to your entire setting and to your game, even though it's just a few years later. So that already is a, is a really cool concept for me here on this one. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like that about it, too. And not a lot of uh, Call of Cthulhu 
scenarios actually take place during the 30s. So it's interesting to see that this one does. Uh, going into the actual kind of meat and potatoes of the story of the scenario itself, though, uh, the investigators, for one reason or another, are going to check in on either one of their uh, one of their potential neighbors or uh, one of their business associates, um, whether it's to collect something from them or just to see if they're all right because they haven't heard from them in a couple of days. Yep, and this all takes place at Ma's boarding house, which is. Um a residential building with just a few apartments in it. And most of the investigators, if not all are going to be residents of this boarding house. Uh, and then there's a couple of other residents in the boarding house that are not, that are NPCs basically that you can interact with. Yeah. And, um, it does, it does kind of quickly mention that the investigators could talk to, uh, the, uh, the person's neighbor, but it doesn't really, provide much useful information for the investigators yeah so personally i think it's kind of it's there just to kind of give it a little bit of flavor but um i think honestly you could kind of just as a keeper say well you knock and she's not home. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah the, the so, npc is not very it doesn't provide very good information for sure and that's that's something that's kind of the case with all of these scenarios yeah is that there aren't there aren't any NPCs for the investigators to interact with or have, um, you know, have sort of like really in depth, interesting dialogue with. So, if those are the types of scenarios that you're looking for, I think that this is kind of a hard pass for you. Uh, really good point. Really, really good point because there are some players that, or especially people that that like to play the game master or the keeper that like to role play the NPCs and you don't have a lot of opportunity for that. And that's, that's something that uh, I hadn't thought about. And now that you mention it, very good point. None of the scenarios really have a whole lot for that, for the keeper to role play NPCs with. Uh, and then the, um, the scenario, um, oh, I lost my thought cause you, you completely opened, you, no, you sparked something in me with this one, with that comment, because that was, that's a really good point about it, about the NPCs. Um, okay, the story. Let's but yeah, so this, um, so the investigators eventually, they make their way into, um, into the, into the guy's room. Um, his name is Mr. Gardner. And as they kind of look around his room, they immediately notice that he is dead on the floor covered in blood with a tarp underneath him also soaked in blood and it's a very confined space it even goes so far as to say that if too many people are in one investigating one particular area you could be um, stepping on blood if you're not careful and tracking it around so very confined space i like the claustrophobia aspect of it and there's a lot to find in this guy's apartment because you start to slowly find out that maybe he was into things that, that he shouldn't have been into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they find various pieces of the occult. There's a strange cryptic letter um, on his body itself. He's carved all sorts of strange occult symbols on his arms and his torso. Um, and yeah, you can kind of see his descent into madness. Uh, all around his apartment. Yep. And here, here's something that's really cool that kind of ties into what you were saying about the NPCs. Even though there's no role play capability for interacting with NPCs, I think this scenario more than the other two 
offers some really interesting dynamics for the pre pre-generated investigators because more than the other scenarios, the investigators here all have some kind of ulterior motive or secret that they're keeping from the other investigators. So like one of them has to, they loan something to this guy and they're trying to get it back or they, they, they're a bookie or a bookkeeper and they're trying to hide ledgers that could incriminate them. So if they find the ledgers in this guy's apartment, now that he's dead, they're going to try and pocket those, but you can't let the other players find out that you're doing that because you're trying not to get caught. So this can lead to the other players suspecting each other or suspecting you of being the murderer because they're going to ask you. And if you're role-playing this properly, you're going to be like, Oh, I didn't find anything. And they're like, well, I saw you put something in your pocket <laughs> and you're going to try and lie about it. And it could create a dynamic of like, wait a minute, this guy's not telling the whole story. He knows more than he's supposed to. And it could lead to an interesting interaction between the players, especially I think experienced role players will really like this this aspect of this particular scenario. You know, while we were saying that there aren't any living NPCs, Mr. Gardner is a very interesting character in the scenario itself that you really could flesh out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, instead of, uh, you know, maybe the scenario, instead of having it start with him dead, you know, maybe, maybe the investigators are kind of looking into him because he, you know, he's all of a sudden kind of dabbling into the occult and, you know, he's kind of talking to people he shouldn't be talking to. And um, the investigators kind of go and they're going to go and talk to him to see what he knows. And they find him dead on the floor or something like that. Yeah, that's cool. You know, there's a, there's a lot of really interesting buildup that you could do uh, to kind of lead up to the, uh, you know, to the scenario itself. And then, you know, as you were alluding to earlier, Vase, there's a lot of really neat things in his apartment that could also serve as scenario seeds. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as it turns out, this guy, when they find him, he's got like these markings on his wounds and markings all over his body. And really what happened, he committed ritual, ritualistic suicide uh, because he's trying. he was a dreamer. He kind of like Randolph Carter, he had ways to dream himself into the dreamlands and he really enjoyed that. And so he, for whatever reason, lost the ability to do so. So he started to delve deep into the occult to try to find ways to get back to the dreamlands and eventually finds this book written by some ancient monk who uh, said he had a way to get, what is it, to permanently get yourself into the dreamlands or something like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the being actually um, is using him for its, for its own gain and uh, kind of un, unbeknownst to both the entity and uh, Mr. Gardner is that he commits the ritual too early. Yeah, he screwed up. He screwed up the ritual and committed it too early. So he ended up killing himself and the the trap that was the book, uh, the, the being that was supposed to possess him, wasn't able to get through, at least not yet. And when the investigators are kind of looking into his death, uh, they, they eventually are able to discover that it was suicide. But right around that point, it's uh, too late because this being now uh, inhabits the body of Gardner and then gets up and then just all hell breaks loose at that point. So the body starts to rise and... The investigators in this very confined space that's super tight and limited and full of still wet blood, um, 
now have to find a way to either get out or defeat this thing. And then the conclusion of the scenario kind of really depends on how the final encounter with the uh, with the gardener monster uh, kind of goes down. But you know, for me, this this scenario feels not only the most fleshed out, but it feels the most interesting. I agree with you. I mean, it's even though the first one's my favorite one, <laughs> this one I is so close as a second one for me, and I think. I, I agree with you. It's the most interesting in terms of uh, having potential for expanding the storyline and that kind of thing. Yeah, because it's it's easy to you know change dates and and times and names and all that stuff. Uh, but the the meat and potatoes of the scenario is really solid, and I really like it a lot. Um, one strength that I think that this uh, scenario has more so than the other ones is that the investigators, like you were saying earlier. Um, not only do they have their own kind of selfish motivations, but, um, you know, they're, they're kind of conflicting when, with one another. And they're not like the, the, the business associate particularly is not a very uh, standout citizen. You know, he, he works for the mob and like I, I find those sorts of player characters to be really interesting. Yeah, not openly antagonistic with the other characters. I don't like the PvP thing, but... I do like when there's secrets and um, secret agendas that kind of make them a little bit shady, but not enough to be like just completely antagonistic with the other player characters. Right, right. Like they want to be amicable so that they can get what they exactly. want. Exactly, yes. Which is really neat. That's the right way um, to put it. <laughs> so I think more so than the other scenarios, this um, this one kind of takes the cake for... Uh, the most interesting NPCs, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like the NPCs in in the uh, Egypt one, f- as far as for scenarios, future scenario seeds and story development. But this one has the most interesting within the scenario itself as a whole, for sure. Uh, they work well with the scenario and also for scenario seeds. And I, I think you know, now that we've kind of read through all of these, I think initially when I when we had gone through dead border originally, we had kind of criticized the ending for the gardener thing being pretty powerful mm-hmm. and can easily kill player characters. But I think kind of, um, I think more so than the other scenarios, this, this one feels the least lethal. I agree. Yeah. Because, um, because there's always the option for the keeper to have the police arrive, mm-hmm. which is pretty clearly stated and it even provides stats for a couple of police uh, police detectives. So so it gives keepers the option that if you feel like the players might be soured by a, a player death, that you can always kind of have the police show up in this kind of heroic, uh, you know, deus ex machina <laughs> kind of style and save the yeah. day. It'll so. take a little, a little bit of... Uh wind out of their sails as far as the ending if you did that but at the same time if they feel like they figured stuff out maybe not so much you know and maybe the maybe the cops is exactly what they what they were looking to get uh but yeah i i agree with you i think initially uh when we initially had talked about it in private (laughs) um this one uh we we really had a problem with this with this uh creature thing being too swingy but when I read through it again now a second time, I totally agree with you. I feel like they give you options, not just the cops, but there's a window. You can push them out the window, and they, they clearly state that, too, that a lot of 
players during their playtest pushed the creature out of the window and it had they had a way to do that or the players themselves jump out of the window <laughs> you know so there's so many different ways that they can uh, survive this that I think this one probably does it best in terms of the the boss at the end yeah yeah I would agree um, and I, I think for me that's kind of one of the most important aspects of a good Call of Cthulhu scenario because the ending is usually what people remember the most. And I think, like, if you can create a good impression, and it's really kind of dependent on your players and their attitudes towards the game because, you know, like we were saying, some players might not take kindly to player deaths, but um, but I think this scenario more than the other ones really provides um, a good way for the keeper to... To produce the ending that they feel is best for their players. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so, what 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 are your final thoughts on this one? Where would you rank this one? Uh, this one's my favorite of the three for sure. Nice. Um, I think it's the most interesting, um, both um, in terms of being able to flesh it out uh, for uh, Gardner as a character and. Um, like his his uh, involvement with the occult, and I think the the ending is handled. I think the best of of the three scenarios overall. Yeah, it's up there for me. It's a very close second place for me of the three. So, uh, I guess law of averages says this is the one that we recommend the most <laughs> versus the other two. I yeah. guess so. Yeah. Um, I do have some criticisms though that I think. Uh, are worth discussing and I think you share this criticism as well as I feel I feel that the rewards feel very static mm-hmm. and um, which is admittedly kind of a minor thing that you can as you gain more experience uh, running games that you can kind of determine what is an appropriate reward to give your investigators Um one of the scenarios I think does a pretty good job, and I'm trying to remember. I think it's actually the necropolis. The ne- yeah, maybe. actually provides you with like a pretty detailed uh, list of rewards to give the players. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I think as a whole, the the book is a little too um, like they they basically didn't dedicate enough time or effort into coming up with rewards for it. So if you survive, you automatically gain sanity. 1d6 sanity is pretty much what all of them do and that's that's something i don't care for because there's different goals and they really should be scaling based on what you've achieved within the scenario because most call cthulhu scenarios work that way and i feel like you want to set people up the right expectation instead of making them giving them these scenarios as their first scenario and then now they're going to have this expectation to always get sanity at the end as a reward just for surviving so that's that's a kind of training people in the wrong way in the beginning. But since we're talking about, I guess we'll start with the negatives of the book as a whole, and then we can just finish off with the positives so we can end on a high note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the negatives that I have for most of these, and most of them are not like egregious examples or egregiously bad. It's just minor, cor- you know, quips that I have about it. Um, one of the bigger ones for me is unnecessary skill checks. I feel like um, the middle scenario doesn't do it as much, but I feel like the Egypt one and then this last one, there's a few times where something is really important to the story 
and they force a skill check. Like this is one oh one here when you're writing a scenario. If if something is important to propel the story forward, don't make it don't leave it up to chance if it's supposed to be revealed. But like as an example, the dead border, there's one one thing that they need to find. It's a secret little chamber where they find the book that is supposed to be the book that leads them into the dreamlands. Without finding this, this this story doesn't keep moving forward. And they make you make a skill check to try and find the secret compartment. I feel like if someone was searching the area, they should automatically find it, regardless of their skill role, because it's part of the story. So it's important for them to find it. Why leave it to chance? And if they fail the role, it tells you, oh, well, they can push the role. So you're going to encourage your players to learn how to push a role. Fine. But then if even that fails, it still tells you, okay, find another way for them to find it. Like then at this point, you're putting a lot of um, trust in your keeper, especially if it's supposed to be a new keeper, in figuring out a way for the players to have found the secret compartment when they should have found it all along. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair criticism uh like you were saying it's not the biggest deal and you could certainly ignore it if you if you wanted to but the scenarios definitely kind of do suggest that like these are pretty critical skill roles and that you should kind of emphasize these and um you know if they do happen to fail these roles then have them push a role or suggest to push roles yep yep and then uh, my other minor uh, gripe is flavor text. I, I get why they do it, especially for new keepers. They want to make sure that you're consistent in your descriptions of things. But I feel like when I'm being read to, I don't pay attention ever. You know? <laughs> so- yeah, I'm kind of the same way. And I do agree with you to an extent. Um, I do think it's kind of nice to have as kind of uh, a jumping off point. Yeah. Like if you wanted to use it as a part of like, a way to take notes and kind of personalize what you were going to say. Sure. Then I think that's fine. But yeah, I think if you were, if you were going to straight up, just read these segments to your players, I think most of them are just going to kind of glaze and over. Tune out. Yeah. No one likes being read to. And that's, that's a huge thing that D and D does a lot. And I think they're getting away from it. And uh, Delta green, I don't think has ever done it. I, I can't recall a scenario that does that. They treat you like an adult about it. They're like, this room has this in it and this in it. And then now that you've read and understand it, you can relay that to your players in your own words. And players are more likely to pay attention to you when you're talking to them instead of reading at them. So that's my only other issue. But again, just like you said, there are ways you can go around it. You can take notes and rephrase it yourself in your own words and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I guess my, my only other kind of grievance against these scenarios in general is I kind of, I do kind of wish that they were a little more um, like there was just a little more to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 I know exactly what you mean. Like each scenario like feels like, yeah, I could run this for an hour and there are definitely elements that if I wanted to flesh them out, I could, but it, like each one kind of feels like it's just like one thing is missing from it. And it's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint, but I think when you, when you go through them, you'll kind of maybe, maybe you'll feel the same way. I, yeah. I think if they would have compiled this and it's funny you mentioned that cause I, I hadn't thought of that until you just mentioned it, but if they had compiled this the way they did, because these adventures all existed before this book was made. Right. And they were all out in the, in the wild beforehand then make it some kind of deluxe thing where you get the mission and then you get all these additional 
extra things in case you do want to expand on it because they're very clear in the book in several different parts of it. They're very clear that you can expand on them, make them longer. And they're like, well, this section, you can extend it to two hours if you're running a longer game, but they don't tell you how to extend it or good ways other than just make them make more roles or describe more. But you're right. I I feel like if they had said, okay, if you're running this as a one hour game, then this, and then maybe an optional page that says, okay, if you're running this as a longer game, then you have all this other stuff is going on and you can throw this in there and get, make it like a mix and match type of thing where they can, they give you more ideas to throw in that makes sense. So you don't have to make it all up yourself. Yeah. And that was one thing I really liked about dead border particularly was that it did provide a lot of that stuff and which was really cool. That's true. It does. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, very true. But yeah, the other two scenarios felt a little lacking for me in that regard. Hmm. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, neutrals? Any neutrals? Yeah, for me, I guess the the only real neutral, um, just to kind of quickly touch on it again, uh, was your, your negative of the flavor text. Um, not only is it kind of like, I'm going to glaze over when my keeper reads this to me, but a lot of it just isn't very inspiring. Mm, yeah. <laughs> not to be... Uh, not to be cold about it, but yeah, a lot of it's just very, um, over the course of the following weeks, you do this, you do this, this happens. And it's just kind of like, it, it serves its purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, for me a neutral would be the epilogues for all of them. They don't, they give you like one paragraph, a short paragraph of that as to what happens in the aftermath. And you're kind of supposed to make up the rest, but I do wish, and I know that they're supposed to be jumping off point type of stories or type of scenarios, but give a little more of what happened at least at the end. Not so. I'm not asking for like scenario seeds. I'm just asking for more description. Like for example, the murder one, right? I, when I asked you, like, did he get cleared? And we were like scrambling to find what happened because it's literally one paragraph of what happens at the end. But for me, that was like important. Like, oh well, the, our whole purpose was to investigate. So we can clear this dude's name and then it's, it feels a little unsatisfying when you're not given the proper ending for a scenario. Yeah. That's, that's definitely something I would agree with as well. And the good. Uh, well, yeah. What about the good? Uh, for me, I think there is a lot of good to, to get out of this product. Me too. (laughs) Um, you know, I think the, well, I do kind of think that I wish that there was like one little more, detail or or seed in the first couple of scenarios i do feel that there is enough especially if you're like vase and you know a particular scenario really inspires you that you could really take one of these and run with it totally which is great um and if you didn't um this is a great little little book to to grab and teach people how to play the game yeah i think they all are really good at what they were meant to do, which is to hook people into the game, give them a true feeling of a full experience of Call of Cthulhu in a short time uh, from everything from the, you know, the themes, the stories, the investigation, skill use, combat, everything, everything's there all wrapped up, which is not an easy feat to do. If you've ever tried to make your own scenario, it's not easy to make them interesting. Um, They all have interesting settings in my opinion, you know, the 1930s one is great. That's my one of my favorite settings here of the three. The Egypt setting is really interesting. 
The other one's pretty cool because of that the family lineage. Um, so I like the the settings. Um, there's also a really good mix of skill use on all of these scenarios. They thought a lot. One criticism I have with Delta Green is not a lot of uh, skills are utilized in some scenarios. Uh, there are some scenarios where there's basically four or five skills that are important, <laughs> you know. Whereas these scenarios here, they pretty much run the gamut of of skill use. Uh, which is nice because then everybody feels useful, you know. Everybody feels like they're contributing and doing stuff. Yeah, definitely. That was that was going to be a positive for me too. Is that each of the scenarios feel distinct mm-hmm. from one another? Uh, I also like in terms of not not scenario based, but more like the actual product that you're getting. The maps are helpful in visualizing exactly what the scene looks like. I'm very glad they provided the maps, and I'm also even more glad that they provided scaling for the maps and not just scaling, but scaling in feet and meters, which is awesome. And there's player versions, player versions of the maps. Very, very good point. (laughs) Very good point. Yeah. That's something that a lot of RPGs lack is they'll give you like, I I buy a lot of stuff from Cobalt press for D and D. And that's my biggest gripe, man, is they give you the map and it's like a DM map and it's got like numbers and, locations and the secret doors are marked with an s and it's like dude i can't give this to my players so you got to draw your own at that point you know so i really like that they have the player versions and especially in a product like this where the scenarios are so short and like it's one or two rooms for most of the scenarios like you really didn't need to make the player maps but they did and that's cool and you know it's just it's another it's another element that you can put on the table for your players and they can really, you know, get into the game and experience it that way, which is great. Oh, hell yeah. And uh, my final good, I mean, there's a lot more good, but my final really, really good um, is the, um, oh, shoot. Now I'm like, the, oh, God. <laughs> oh, the, the NPCs. Um, I found it. Sorry. The, not the NPCs, the, the pre-made investigators. It's like my favorite thing about this product. The pregens are great. They're fleshed out. They have awesome storylines for each scenario. They have ties to the scenarios that in- increase the uh, immersion of the scenario and also improve the storyline because as things come out about your individual investigator as a player, it's like, oh, cool, this person has a bloodline that's tied to this whole thing that happened. Or, oh, man, I can't believe this guy that I'm working with here is trying to hide ledgers for his accounting you know because he works for the mafia so it's really really neat that they went above and beyond with all the pre-generated characters yeah and another um point to kind of add on to that as well is that it it emphasizes different aspects of the characters um you know as i think like you were saying earlier a lot of players probably come from call of cthulhu from dungeons and dragons or you know, these kinds of like fantasy style RPGs. And um, while backstory kind of can take a back seat in a lot of those kinds of, I guess they're more like war simulation games, uh, Call of Cthulhu, it's, it's a very important aspect of your character. Uh, there's like very real mechanical um, repercussions for how you develop your character. So it's really nice that they, not only do they emphasize that, but they, they do it in a really cool and interesting way. Yeah, yeah. The madness, you know, each one is outlined what happens when they gain an indefinite madness. It's great. It's really cool because it really, as a new player especially, 
it's very helpful for you to keep in line with your character's personality and stuff, you know? Yep. And the one last good thing that I have kind of on a similar note with the pregens is that each of the scenarios also gives examples for what happens if a particular investigator has a bout of madness or goes indefinitely insane to kind of, it, and it gives each one sort of a personalized, um, you know, little, little blurb, which is great. Um, yeah. Like a little, a little text. That's like a sentence of what they say when they go crazy or something. Yeah. What they say, but it also provides like some of the mechanics as well. Like, you know, it, it puts their sanity total right there in that little box. So you don't have to go back and forth and check it. So there was a nice little touches like that too that really helped. Oh yeah, to yeah, definitely flesh the scenarios out for the key. I love that. I love that insanity little thing, and they do it for all three scenarios, which is which is awesome. Yeah, they they it's it feels like they really sat down and thought about what would a new player need in order to really enjoy this and not have to do a ton of work. And then they also thought about how is the player going to enjoy this. Um, and how are we going to make it easy for the keeper to run? Yep, yep. So I think overall, you know, I think this is a really solid introductory product for someone looking to, uh, you know, maybe maybe they're looking for something new for their RPG group, and they have the quick start rules from Chaosium's website, and they, they just kind of want to get a taste of what Call of Cthulhu is Before like. Before diving in. But don't really, really want to, right, they don't really want to commit to, like, buying $100 worth of books. So they buy this, and they just run a scenario and see how it goes and see if the group likes it. Yep. Yeah, I think I, I would highly recommend this as an introductory product as well. And even if you're an experienced keeper and, and an experienced group and you're trying to bring in someone new into your group, even if it's just one new player... It's a great product for that because experienced players will enjoy role-playing these pre-made investigators and experienced keepers will enjoy reading through a very well-made scenario that's organized. It's a dream, honestly, the way it's organized. It's great. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, you know, uh, and kind of on a similar note, if you needed to bring someone new into an existing campaign... You could kind of sit down with them, you know, maybe an hour before you're supposed to play and just play through one of these. Really oh, quickly. yeah, that's great. That's a great idea. Run it like a one shot. Everybody plays one of the investigators from there. And then whoever that new player picks as their investigator is who survives or whatever out of this mm-hmm. and joins the group in another. Yeah, that's cool. That's a really cool idea. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of great things that you could do with a product like this. And, you know, I think we picked this up for $10 in PDF form. So, I mean, it's, I think you're getting a lot for your money here. Agreed. Yep. Totally agreed. Cool. Uh, All right. I think that's it for my final thoughts. You got any other final thoughts? No, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Um, Yeah. Overall, I think we would give this a solid recommendation. So uh, this has been our review of Chaosium's Gateways to Terror three nights of or uh, three evenings of nightmare uh it is currently out in pdf and physical form so if you're interested in checking this product out you can purchase it at chaosium.com i've been your host nate lost in time and space and i was joined with today innkeeper vase odin from the twisted tentacle Inn. and we will see you all soon